In the work, we hear a lot about mechanicalness, how we are part of the mechanical circle of humanity, how our behaviors are reactionary, mechanical. That is, they're programmed into us and they don't really require a lot of thought or conscious effort on our part. And so we continually repeat the same things over and over again, the same thoughts, the same feelings, the same actions, basically the same life, a life of recurrence. In terms of inner development, being mechanically good or mechanically bad is pretty much the same thing according to esoteric teachings. In esoteric teachings, mechanical refers to the state in which humanity passes its life. As I said, we're part of the mechanical circle of humanity, which is different from the conscious circle of humanity, that is, those who have awakened, those who can act consciously, those who can actually do, those who have realized real I, those who have basically the ability to do, apart from old associations and mechanical reactions, something that is difficult for us to understand. There's a conscious circle of humanity, and though we are not in touch with it, we're told that it is there. It's composed of people who did indeed wake up and who divested themselves of imaginary I. As you may remember from previous podcasts, imaginary I is what the fourth way calls that part of us that keeps us from realizing what we're really like, our acquired self. I've used the example of a dragon in Chinese New Year's Day parades. They'll often have a dragon, and a lot of people will be underneath this shell, this piece of cloth and a head, and they'll have props underneath it, so they'll be moving it and holding it up and moving it along so that it undulates like a dragon along the ground, or what a dragon may look like when it undulates along the ground. And it covers all of the many eyes, the many people that are underneath it. So it appears to be one thing, but it's not that thing. And so this is what imaginary eye is like. It appears to be this one thing, but underneath it are many, many different things. Fragmented personality. Imaginary eye is what this work calls our feeling of ourselves when it has entered into the acquired part of us. The acquired part of us is false. We call it false personality. So it's the false part that covers or surrounds real I, or, for us, essence. Even though we don't know what real I is, we don't know what real I is because we're not in touch with it, we're very unclear on what essence is as well, for the same reason. We're really not in touch with that either. Mechanical people such as ourselves are acted upon by events of life. They're operated by life, controlled by external happenings. The funny thing about mechanical people, such as ourselves, is we can see that everybody else is mechanical, that most other people are mechanical. We have a very difficult time seeing that we're mechanical, and the reason is because of this imaginary I, because our feeling of I has entered into this imaginary thing that hides from us our multiplicity, our many selves, our many different eyes, our many different parts, our many different contradictions. And hides it from us because we really couldn't live without these buffers. It's sad that people hear about this work and before they really understand it, they go right into right and wrong. If you have buffers, then you're wrong, you're bad. If you don't have buffers, like they don't, then they're good and they're right. 
And the problem is, is that in this work, everybody has buffers. Everybody is mechanical. We're not dealing with the conscious circle of humanity here. We're dealing with the mechanical circle of humanity, which we are included in. No matter how much we imagine that we're not in the mechanical circle of humanity, we are. This is where the work finds us. This is why we need the work. I know that there are a lot of people who feel like after they've been in the work a little while, they, it doesn't really take that long either. After they've been in the work a little while, they, they start to think that they no longer need it. They got it already. They understand it. They've accepted it. They've realized it. They've expanded their consciousness, raised their level of being. And now they're smart enough and clever enough and wise enough to be able to look at everybody else and find out what's wrong with them and judge them and essentially fix them. And so they become the fixers in the work, the people who go around fixing everybody else but really do nothing with themselves. And they may even realize, well, I'm not perfect. Well, I haven't changed my level of being. But I still know what's wrong with you. I still can tell you what you have to fix. I can still see all of the things that are wrong with you. Never understanding that nine times out of ten for most people, this is projection. We are projecting onto another person the very things that we feel we are unable to accept in ourselves. Maybe not unable to see in ourselves. Just because we can see something doesn't mean we can accept it as what's so. And just because we can see it in the moment doesn't mean that we can put the two contradictory sides together and see them as one. It takes a tremendous amount of effort and it takes a great deal of self-observation, sincere, proper self-observation, according to what esoteric teachings tell us to observe, not according to what we think we should observe or what's easy to observe or what appears to us in the moment. So here we are, being acted upon by life, being driven by life, being controlled by the events that stream by us in life, and all the time thinking that we're not, that we're actually doing, that we actually have will, that we actually have one permanent I. All of this imagination goes to make up imaginary I. Now, according to this esoteric idea of mechanicalness, if we do good or do evil, it's because we can do nothing else in our state of waking sleep. Because of the hypnotism of life, every time we begin to wake up a little bit, life, in a hurry, rushes in, hypnotizes us again. We fall back to sleep. We fall back into the second state of consciousness, which is waking sleep. And remember, the difference between the second state of consciousness and the first state of consciousness, the first state of consciousness being sleep on your bed, the second state of consciousness being waking sleep, that means that your moving center has become active. So you're no longer lying on your bed. Now you've got your feet out of the bed and you're walking around and your moving center is active and is taking you here and there, transporting you through life. But for all intents and purposes, we're in pretty much the same state of sleep, just a little bit different, a little bit higher, but not that much higher, not enough to go bragging about, not enough to think that we've reached enlightenment, as it were. And because of this sleep, it's very difficult for us to grasp this idea, to really understand this idea of mechanicalness and that doing good and doing evil mechanically is pretty much the same thing. Essentially what I'm saying is mechanically good men and mechanically bad men are the same because they can't behave any differently. In other words, they are machines, they are being acted upon by life and they're doing what they were programmed to do from their earliest training, and they have little or no choice in it. Esoteric teachings, therefore, help us to try to alter our mechanical reactions to things, which is really going against the neuronic pathways laid down in the brain 
from our early training, from our first education. When people hear this profound teaching, they usually take the idea very pessimistically because they fail to join this idea with another great idea. The other great idea that the work teaches us, that esoteric teachings have relayed to man, is man is a self-developing organism. No one can do it for you. This is something that you must do yourself. You can read about it, you can hear about it, you can watch other people do it. But until you actually do it yourself, until you actually begin to practice these ideas, take the idea of self-observation, for example. Most people hear about self-observation. They imagine that they've been observing themselves for years. How else would they know this or that about themselves? But there's a difference between introspection and proper self-observation as taught by esoteric schools. And the difference is there are rules to follow in the self-observation, proper self-observation taught by esoteric schools. In introspection, you just see whatever you see. You take it however you take it. You have no greater ideas to test it against, to prove it with. And so you just accept it as what's so and move on thinking that now you know. When in fact, we don't know ourselves any better at all. We have really added to false personality and imaginary I. Remember that imaginary I is the covering, the coat over false personality that keeps us from seeing what we're really like. That keeps us from seeing our many different contradictions. The contradictions that are separated by buffers, the buffers are there so that we don't go mad. If we could see all of our contradictions at once, Gurdjieff said, we would go mad. Judging by the reactions that I've seen in people who have seen one or two contradictions in themselves at the same time, and the anger and negative emotions that have come up in them over that, and the self-justifying, and the projection, and the lashing out at other people, and the blame shifting, I would say that Gurdjieff had a pretty good idea of what would happen if we saw all of our contradictions at the same time. We truly would go insane. Not that we're not insane already. Remember that the work teaches that whenever we're negative, whenever we're in a negative state, we are, for all intents and purposes, insane because we are completely out of touch with reality. So unless we can join this one idea of mechanicalness with the idea of being a self-developing organism, it's easy to take all this the wrong way. So we have in us the possibility of making quite new associations different from what life has burned into our brains. Some people have a fear of heights. Other people have a fear of water. Some people have a fear of this or that. Some people, they like this food and they don't like that food. This one, they like this smell, but they don't like that smell. Where someone else would come along and they like the very smell that someone hates and they hate the very smell that someone else likes. They love the food that someone can't stand and they hate the food that other people love. And so we have these likes and dislikes that have all been burned into our brains, as it were into our neuronic pathways by these associations that we have acquired in life. What esoteric teachings tell us is that we have the possibility to change all of that, to make very new associations based on our second education rather than our first education, the education that we acquired as we were growing up, the education that we got from teachers, from our caregivers, from siblings, from peers, from all of the people and the things that we experienced in life during our time in life until we meet this work. And then it doesn't stop. We continue to 
taking associations, then they're not always new associations. Sometimes we just reinforce old associations. It's just that we're doing it in the work now. All that means is that we have found the work or the work has found us, but that doesn't mean we've allowed it to enter into us to get past the intellectual center into the emotional center where it can actually do some real good, where it can actually change some things in us, where we can actually get on the path of transformation and self-development. Just because we are self-developing organisms doesn't mean that we are developing ourselves. We can get to the end of life, we can get to the grave without doing much at all to develop ourselves in an internal way, in a psychological way, in a spiritual way, in a way that leads us toward real I, that leads us toward our destiny, that leads us toward realizing the possibility of our spiritual and psychological evolution, which right now in our current state is very difficult for us to understand in any way, very difficult for us to grasp, mainly because it's so hard for us to see even a little bit above our level. We can't see very high above where we are. It's like standing on the ground and standing up close to something. And even if it's 10 feet tall and you're six feet tall, if you're standing close enough to it, you can't see the top of it. So it's like that for us. We can't see very high above our level. And this is a tremendous disadvantage to us. And this is why esoteric ideas become so important. If we can receive these ideas, because these ideas carry influence from the conscious circle of humanity, they carry power, they carry the ability to influence us, to lift us up, to change our meaning, to give us new meaning, not really to change our meaning, but to give us new meaning so that we actually begin to expand the meaning that we have about things and enrich it until it is transformed. So it's really transformed meaning. So these higher influences, these higher ideas have the ability, if we practice them, if we take them into ourselves, to transform the meaning that we now have into new meaning. And that new meaning raises our level of being, expands our consciousness, and alters us internally. In other words, we begin to develop when you really begin to get this idea, when you really begin to understand this idea that we can make new associations, that we can burn into our brains or lay down in our brains new neuronic pathways that will give us the opportunity to respond to life in a completely different way, different from the way we always have. In other words, the person who's afraid of heights can respond in a different way to heights. A person who's afraid of water can respond to water in a different way person who, who likes this and doesn't like that can respond in a completely different way. He can become flexible. And this is one of the things that the work teaches is one of the signs of intelligence is the ability to adapt, flexibility. So when we, when we are less rigid, when we can be more supple and yielding and more like water, non-resistant, we can take life as it comes and take new meaning from life instead of always reacting in the same way to life out of the old neuronic pathways, out of the old associations, out of the old meaning that we had from our first education. The exciting part of this is that modern neurologists have found the overwhelming majority of our brains are ready and waiting for new connections to be made. Actions and thoughts can be laid down in our brains that are entirely different. We have, it's like a field. Imagine a field that has been plowed or that needs to be plowed. But imagine a field that has very little planted in it, very little growing in it. 
And someone can come along and they see it and they see the potential of it and they say, and this is what neurologists are doing, they're seeing this huge field of the mind, our forebrain, that is so undeveloped, that has these vast tracts of area that are unused, that could be used, but we're not doing anything with it because we are habitually traveling down the old paths over and over and over again. We never get into this new field where new things could be planted, where new paths could be made, where new trenches could be dug where new pathways could be made, new roads could be made, new trails could be made, new associations could be made. And so this is what modern neurologists are finding out, that we have this overwhelming majority of our brains not being used, but ready to be used. And it's not that difficult to do. We just have to know how to do it. And then, because we're self-developing organisms, do the work ourselves, not just read about it, not just listen about it, but actually do the hard work, make the effort of practicing these principles, practicing these ideas, until we actually begin to burn in these new neuronic pathways in our brains. Now it's going to take some time before we shift from one to the other. We let go of the old and get into the new so that we follow the new, but it's something that can be done if we persevere. Someone awakening to esoteric ideas who's willing to evaluate them will begin to think in a new way. This is called metanoia in esoteric teachings. In the Bible, metanoia in the Greek is translated as repentance, but the real meaning of it is change of mind. And it's more than just a change of mind, but mind changes by changing thoughts. And changing thoughts change by having new ideas, having higher ideas that can lift our thoughts up out of the old ruts, out of the old neuronic pathways that they've been in, lift them up and put them in new neuronic pathways that we build with these ideas, that we lay down with these ideas and with the practice of these ideas. So metanoia is a very real thing if you practice it. Thinking in a new way means creating new associative roads in our brains. The mind works through the brain, making it capable of infinite development. People get the mind and the brain confused. Let's look at it this way. You can see a car, and then you can see the driver of the car. The car is like the brain, but the driver of the car is like the mind. The problem with us is that the car is out of control. The brain is out of control because we have put these neuronic pathways in there from our old associations, it just keeps on repeating the same thing over and over again. So when someone sits down to meditate, they have thoughts that just keep on running through their brain over and over again. And we take that as the mind because we can't separate the mind from the brain without a great deal of effort. And most people are not willing to make that effort, which is why most people never learn really to meditate. They always find they have something else to do. They always find they don't have time for this, they don't have time for that. They've got other things that they have to do, and so meditation goes to the back burner. The purpose of meditation is to learn to concentrate, to learn to separate from the mind, so that you can begin to be the driver instead of let the car drive you, take you around, or in other words, instead of the car being out of control, you become the driver by learning how to separate from the mind, separate from the brain, and use it in a different way, instead of having it use you. Our frontal lobes are almost completely undeveloped. Connecting this huge brain potential to esoteric truth means that we could stop being small-minded savages. Imagine what it would be like if you could stop disliking people, if you could stop arguing with people, if we could stop war on this planet, if we didn't have to lock our doors because some small-minded savages were 
forgetting the law of karma, forgetting the law of cause and effect, forgetting that you can't get something for nothing, and that everything you take, you will have to pay back eventually. So the people who are too small-minded to be able to see this, who have not practiced these principles, who have not laid down these new neuronic pathways in their brains, these people, if they could do this, we wouldn't have to lock our doors, we wouldn't have wars, we wouldn't have arguments, we wouldn't disagree, we wouldn't have these problems. We would be in touch with real conscience instead of acquired conscience, and people would agree on things, because what is real and lasting is eternal. And what is acquired is acquired. It's false. And it will eventually erode. It will eventually fall apart. So these are the things that make this whole idea of mechanicalness and our way out of mechanicalness so important to study, to understand. Thinking in a new way is our way out of mechanicalness. Creating new associative roads in our brains is the path out of mechanicalness. But modern neurologists are telling us now is that we are capable of infinite development. They cannot see an end to it. They cannot see our limitations. We are so underdeveloped that they can't see the heights to which we could reach if we were willing to do this work, if we were willing to do the work of laying down these new neuronic pathways in this uncharted frontal lobe portion of the brain. Thinking in a new way means everything can change. New associations means relating to ourselves, relating to others, relating to life and everything in life in a completely different way. Instead of getting depressed when someone says you're ugly and your mother dresses you funny, or instead of getting upset or aggravated or irritated or whatever, we could lay down new neuronic pathways, change entirely how we respond to a statement like that or something like that, and free ourselves from the mechanicalness of life that makes us do the same thing over and over again. My wife is fond of saying, if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. This is, in a nutshell, what it means to have old associations. Always doing what we always did, always getting what we always got. But with new associations, you start to do things in a different way. You start to get different things in life than you used to get because now you have new associations which are leading you in an entirely different direction. When our old associations are challenged by new ideas, ordinarily we find that we're resistant and annoyed, irritated. It works like this. How many times when you're listening to a podcast do I say something that you instantly resist. You say, no, that's not right. That's not true of me. Well, he's projecting. Well, that's not the way that is. Well, I've already overcome that. Well, yes, I see that about myself, but I've overcome that already. That's the way it used to be. But that's not the way it is anymore. We go into self-justifying. We go into anger. We go into denial. We go into resistance. We go into all of these things that keep us from actually changing our associations, actually seeing things in a new way, actually having the old associations start to shift a little bit with the new ideas. The work says it's better for most people to carry on in their mechanical sleep, in their small patterns, whether they're so-called good or bad people. Well, what can I say? I've told you before that this work is dangerous. If you get it in your hands before you are ready to do something with it and you don't understand it, you can end up using it as a weapon against other people rather than using it as a tool for your own inner change, inner development, 
changing from a mechanical being to a conscious being, getting out of the mechanical circle of humanity and getting into the conscious circle of humanity. There's a huge shift that can occur and that will occur if you do the work properly. If you don't, then what you end up doing is taking the ideas and using them on other people. And that doesn't do anyone any good. So when we come back to this great idea that the work teaches, that whether you're mechanically good or mechanically bad, it makes no difference. You're the same, according to this work. Now, in life, someone who's mechanically good is preferred to someone who's mechanically bad. Everyone would much rather be around someone who's mechanically generous than around someone who mechanically steals. Everyone would much rather be around someone who mechanically says nice things even if it's insincere, we would rather be around someone like that than be around someone who is mechanically unpleasant, unkind. It's not much better for us when we're mechanical. Our mechanicalness makes us basically resist, hate, eschew people who are consciously unkind. So someone who tells you the truth when the truth is the last thing you really want to hear, but the thing that you do need to hear. So someone who consciously tells you the truth is much better from a work point of view than someone who unconsciously tells you the truth or unconsciously lies to you. So the idea is that consciousness is the only way that we can develop. So anything that we do consciously brings us closer to development, brings us closer to our goal, brings us closer to our aim. And anything that is done mechanically, no matter how good it is, takes us further away from our aim, further away from our goal. So one of the main things that's very difficult to understand, but we still need to really try to understand this, is that being mechanically good or mechanically bad is exactly the same thing from a work standpoint. There's no difference between them. A mechanically bad person can't enter the path. A mechanically good person may enter this path, but he's going to find the road extremely difficult. And in most cases, he's going to turn back and be much worse than when he started. This may not sound like a very good diagnosis, but it is the truth. The problem after entering this way is making one consciously good rather than mechanically good. The mechanically good people are the ones who are so stuck in their goodness that it prevents them understanding the work. For example, the Pharisees that are written about in the Bible. The Pharisee represents a mechanically good man. Now, Jesus could raise the dead, heal the sick, heal the blind, heal the people who couldn't talk, people who were deaf, people who were lame. He healed all of these people. But the one person he could never heal was the Pharisee. And the reason he couldn't heal the Pharisee, so we don't get pessimistic about it, the reason he couldn't heal the Pharisees was because this is self-development. You can't make someone else develop. They must desire it, they must want it, and they must do it themselves. The problem with a Pharisee, the problem with someone who is mechanically good, is that they think they're already good, and so they never look to change. But when you're mechanically good, you need to make changes, new neuronic pathways in your brain, just as if you were mechanically bad. Because there is no difference between the two from a work point of view, from an esoteric point of view. Mechanically Good people don't observe themselves. They take their goodness for granted. Well, of course I'm good. Of course I'm generous. Look at all of the areas in which you take yourself for granted, that you think that you're good, you're generous, you're kind, you are working, you're trying to remove buffers, you're doing this, you're doing that. All of these things that we mechanically think we're doing well. 
and we take our goodness for granted. So we never observe what we take for granted or look for what we think we possess. I've used the example, I don't know how many times, of losing your car keys. If you think you've got your car keys, if you think you know where they are on the hook there, by the door or in your pocket or in your jacket pocket or where you left them on the hall table when you came in the house or in your pocket in your pants, wherever you keep your keys. If you think you know where they are, you never really start to look for them until you go to that place and they're not there. When they're not there, then you realize you don't have what you thought you had and you begin to look. This is the same thing that happens with mechanically good people. They take themselves for granted, they think they are good, and so it's very difficult for them to start to work on the idea of being consciously good, which is what this work is all about. It doesn't matter how good you are consciously, it doesn't matter how conscious you are now. The object of this work is to make you more aware, is to make you more conscious, is to raise your level of being even more, is to expand your consciousness even more until you can enter the conscious circle of humanity and stay there. The problem with us now is we can enter the conscious circle of humanity for an instant. We can become conscious for a moment, but then we fall back down back into the mechanical circle of humanity because we can't sustain it because we have not crystallized in this conscious state. But instead, we are very crystallized in this unconscious state, in this mechanical state. We are very crystallized in our mechanicalness. Whether it be mechanically good or mechanically bad makes no difference from an esoteric point of view. From an esoteric point of view, the crystallization in the mechanicalness, whether it's good or bad, is what needs to be broken up, is what needs to be changed. That's where we need to work, and that's where the new neuronic pathways need to be laid down in the brain so that the mind can operate more fully through the brain. This can only be done consciously because life will never give it. You could live a thousand years in life, and life will never give you what you can get from higher influences. A influences, the influences of life, will never be able to give you C influences because life does not produce C influences. Life takes C influences, changes them to B influences, and then after a time, erodes them and corrodes them into A influences turns them into something entirely different. As a matter of fact, can turn them into the very opposite. A perfect example of this is esoteric teachings teach conscious love. Conscious love enters into the mechanical circle of humanity as an idea. That idea then becomes romantic love. And then that romantic love, when things don't go right, when people don't meet our expectations, that romantic idea of love that was conscious love, an idea of conscious love that came from C influence, turns into B influence, now turns into A influence, and we end up hating the thing that we loved or the person that we loved. Life will never give us higher influences, C influences. Life will never show us how to be more conscious. Life will hypnotize us, make us more and more mechanical, keep us asleep until it can reap us, until it can harvest us, until it can do with us, drain our force, drain our life energy, and use us like a battery. Finally, let me just leave you with this. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, it's written, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. The hard part of these ideas is not the ideas themselves. It's accepting these ideas into ourselves, allowing them a place in us, 
allowing them to begin to change us. And the reason it's difficult is because it can be extremely painful. It can be very painful to have these old neuronic pathways removed or changed and new neuronic pathways burned into the brain because we are so resistant, because we are so sure that we're right. We're so sure that we're good. We're so sure that we don't need this. Oh, maybe in a few little ways, but mostly we're pretty good. We look around at the other people and we can see clearly that the world is in need of these ideas. And then we take it upon ourselves to bring the ideas to the world instead of applying the ideas to ourselves. Remember, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Don't be just a hearer of these ideas. Be a doer of these ideas. Put them to work in your own life. Turn away from telling other people how they need to fix it and do it yourself. You're not a